You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. It is uh, great to have you with us today. And uh, trust that you're having a, a great day. Uh, you are drier than those of us in the room. I do know that for sure. Uh, but it's, it's great to be together this Advent season. And what we're doing is we're kind of walking through uh, the Advent season, and we are looking at traditional passages that have to do with Advent. And by traditional, I mean sort of the passages that are looked at each year, especially by more liturgical churches than we would be, that follow the church calendar throughout the year more closely than we would. Um, so we're trying to learn from, from them this year a little bit and see kind of the rhythm of preparing for Christmas. And the last couple of weeks, we've talked about this, that Advent and Christmas are different. Christmas is the day that we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, to come and rescue us. Advent is the season that leads up to Christmas when we pause and consider our need for rescue. One is the announcement that rescue has arrived uh, at Christmas. Advent is the longing and the preparation, even the word we heard this morning about search me, O Lord, the security of that during this time of Advent. Advent is a season where we consider our need and we look to Jesus as our hope, as we just sang, so that we grow in our worship and devotion to him in this season. And we've talked about this fact, that Advent begins in the dark. It begins by sort of looking and realizing the darkness of our world, the brokenness of our world, and the the darkness of our own hearts as well, and our need for the light as we look to the light. So the text today is another text about John the Baptist. He's a towering figure of Advent. And so we're going to look at him today again from John 1. uh, And we see uh, really how much this idea of Advent beginning in the dark and looking for the light, how his message, uh, we get that from his message. So in John 1, we're going to kind of look at three sections of John 1, but I'm going to start by just looking at verses 6 through 8. John 1 verses 6 through 8. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. This is God's holy word. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. I want to talk about the idea of Advent witness today a little bit, and we're going to look at John the Baptist uh, as a key Advent witness, and then along the way, I want to make some application to ourselves, because I believe we're all called to be Advent witnesses, though our role is different than his. So John is described as one who is a witness, that's his life and his actions, he is is a witness, verse 7, he came as a witness, but he says something else, to bear witness about the light, so he is a witness, and he bears witness. To bear witness means to give testimony. So a witness is someone who knows something, who's seen something, uh, who's experienced something. And then to bear witness is to explain, to testify what you know, what you've seen. And so he is a witness, and he bears 
witness. And at Advent, we look at a lot of different prophets that, that bear witness of the coming Christ. The, the, probably the primary prophet we look at at the time of the year is Isaiah. We open the service with a reading from Isaiah. Um, but really, John the Baptist is the ultimate prophet and the ultimate witness because he not, ju- he not only points people to Christ, but we'll see in the next passage we're going to look out, look at, he points out Christ. Isaiah pointed and said, you know, there's one coming. John the Baptist said, there's one coming, and he's right there. He points him out to those who would listen. He is the witness who says, that one there is the Savior. And in this witness, in this passage, the two passages we're about to look at about John the Baptist, we see two things that are happening. In the first section, he is sort of minimizing himself. He's deflecting from himself uh, as people come and question him. And, and it's really, he, it's, he's being less of a, he's less focused on him. I'm going to call that less messenger. And then in the next section, he's pointing to how great Christ is and how great the work of Christ is. That's the message. So really being a witness in the, in the style of John the Baptist is less messenger, more message. Less messenger, more message. And that's really the theme for us that I want to talk about today. So let's talk about less messenger. He came to bear witness, but how does he evaluate himself? Look at verse 19. Let's read verses 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord, as, Isaiah, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Less messenger. You know, less messenger means to think, uh, we could say to think less of ourselves, but probably a better way to say it would be to think of ourselves less. Less messenger. There are times when we should be concerned about our reputation. There are times when we should even defend our reputation. But in reality, all of us give way too much thought to ourselves and what other people think about us. We like to be liked. We love to be loved. We get upset when our work and our accomplishments go unnoticed. And yet, when someone credits us, when someone makes assumptions about us that put us in a role that's really better than we really are, we're very slow to correct that misperception. So if you think low, I'd like to raise your, your uh, perception of me. But if you think too high of me, eh, that, that's okay. Uh, hang around, you'll find out. That's not really true. But we don't typically do that, do we? Less messenger, more message. I, I read a story this week about the great um, 
conductor, orchestra conductor, Toscanini. He was an Italian conductor uh, who, who lived in the first half of the 20th century, arguably one of the greatest conductors of the 20th century. Some say one of the greatest musicians in the world in the first half of the 20th century. So he was very unique uh, in his skill and his understanding of music and his ability to bring out uh, the dynamics of a piece and all that's involved when he conducted an orchestra. So one time he was conducting an orchestra that played Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And at the end of it, it was so moving and so powerful, um, unlike anything many of the people in the audience had heard, that the audience jumped to their feet and roared with applause at the end of the production. So Toscanini, as would be appropriate, you know, took his bow to say thanks to them as they were all clapping for him for the orchestra and the performance they had just heard. And then Toscanini turned around to the orchestra he turned around to the orchestra and he said to them, while there's this uproarious applause behind, behind him, he said to them, I am nothing. The crowd screaming and cheering, I am nothing. And then he said to them, you are nothing. You are nothing. And then he said to them, Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. His point was to say, they are excited, they are cheering, they are applauding, but let's be real. Let's be real. We've played a piece, but the greatest, the greatest one is the one who composed the piece. We just performed what he wrote. Beethoven is everything. That is the difference in the message, in the messenger in the message, and that is the life of John the Baptist. He is focused on the message of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and not himself. His testimony begins about himself, responding to questions. Verse 19, the Jews sent uh, priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So the leading Jews in Jerusalem, and we know they're the Pharisees, verse 24 said this little uh, delegation had been sent from the Pharisees. They're coming to ask and find out who is this guy. There's this crazed wilderness prophet. He's out in the desert. Everybody's going out to listen to him. He is preaching this message that the Messiah is coming. He's baptizing people, which is very unorthodox, actually unheard of at the time. And so they are coming. The Pharisees say, look, we need to get some people, some scouts some spies. They, they need to go out and do a private investigation and find out who is this guy, or at least who does he think he is. So they ask him, first of all, you know, who are you? He says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So they're wondering, uh, well, they're probably not really wondering if he's the Christ. They're probably wondering if he's claiming to be the Christ. And he makes very clear, I'm not the Christ. That is not who I am. So then they begin to ask, um, you know, another question. Are you Elijah? You're acting like a prophet. Who made you a prophet? Are you Elijah? And after he denies being the Christ, he denies being Elijah. Now, the fact they're asking him if he's Elijah, that's a, that's a very legitimate question because he's announcing the coming of the Messiah. And the Jews understood that before the Messiah came, that, um, that, that Elijah would return. Elijah's a prophet in the Old Testament who never died. He just like got carted off uh, up into uh, heaven, just sort of rode off into the sky, literally. Uh, and uh, so there was a view that he never died, so he will come back and he will announce right when 
Christ is about to come. Matter of fact, the second to last verse of our Old Testament uh, tells us that. Uh, Malachi says, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So the fact that they think he could be Elijah, that's legitimate. Um, that's a legitimate question they're asking. He dresses like Elijah, acting like this wilderness, wilderness prophet, but he says, no, I am not Elijah. He's certainly in the role of Elijah, but he's not Elijah. He's preparing the way, but he's not Elijah. He says, I am not. They say, are, are you the prophet? That's the next question they ask in 22. Who are you? You know, are you the prophet? He says, no. Verse 22, he says, uh, they say, who are you? We need to give an answer. What do you say about yourself? This is what they're really getting at. Who do you think you are? What are you doing out here bringing all the people away from us to yourself what is this message? What is this baptism? Who gave you authority? Who gave you credentials? Who are you claiming to be? You know, that's a question that any of us could be asked as a witness. Now, no one's going to ask you if you're the Messiah, but someone could ask this very question. Who do you think you are? You know, who do you think you are saying you believe this and you know that and your book tells you this? Who do you think you are as a follower of Jesus? Who do you think you are telling people, you know, what to do. Who do, you, who do you think you are? You think your life's all together? You think you've got everything down that you're some righteous person? I've been around you. I've seen your faults. How, who are you? What do you believe? Why do you believe that? I mean, these are very real questions that we could be asked as a witness. So it's, in, it's informative to see how he responds when asked all these questions. Verse 40, uh, I'm sorry, uh, not verse 40, verse uh, 20. 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So uh, he's basically saying, uh, now I wouldn't recommend you give this answer, I'm prophesied in the Old Testament by Isaiah, that wouldn't be a good answer for any of us to give, but he is deflecting and he's saying, hey, I'm a voice. I'm, I'm nothing special. I'm not claiming some great role. I am not professing perfection, though he was a great man. But he's saying, I, I'm not, here's what I'm doing. I'm just pointing to someone else. I'm just preparing the way for someone else. He deflects and he points on to Christ. Now, when Isaiah said this, when Isaiah prophesied, you know, the voice of one crying in the wilderness will come, make straight the way of the Lord, he was talking at the time about making a pathway. They were in, the, in exile, uh, Israel was, and he was talking about making a pathway to go back home to Jerusalem. So he's saying, my role is to clear the brush out of the pathway. My role is to make sure that we have a clear road between us and the Lord. In other words, what he's saying, I'm just, I'm a voice, and think of that as I'm just on the road crew. That's what I do. I'm just making a road. I'm making a pathway for the Messiah. Now, road crews are very important. If you drove here, which I assume you did given the weather, if you drove here this morning, you can thank someone who worked on a road crew, someone who stood out in the hot uh, asphalt uh, on a summer day when it was 105 degrees outside and probably standing on that asphalt was 120 degrees, and the guy who stood there and held the sign that told you to slow down, you know, lots of people did that so that we could get here today. So road crew work uh, is very important. But in our culture, it's not necessarily impressive or flashy or celebrity work. 
it's valuable to the Lord, it's valuable to us. But he's saying, I'm working on the road. I'm just trying to prepare a path. And how is he preparing a path? He's preaching and baptizing and saying, get ready for Jesus. Look to the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. His whole ministry is not about him. He's not a celebrity preacher. He's not trying to gather followers as if that's his significance. He certainly wants people to hear the message. But he's not building a platform. He's saying, I'm on the road crew. I'm clearing the way so that, so that you can get to the Lord and the Lord comes to you. That's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get obstacles out of the way so that you can encounter not me, but you can encounter Jesus. That's how he prepares the way for people. In his commentary on John, Andreas Kostenberger says, the task of witnessing to Jesus today is similar. It's clearing away obstacles that may keep people from coming to Jesus. The most glaring being their sin and need of repentance. Uh, we can be an obstacle as well, but ultimately it is individuals distance from God that is the obstacle. And John is removing that obstacle by telling them the truth about Jesus and calling them to repent. Their final question, verse 25, is, then why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answers them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So they're saying, if you're none of these great people, why are you baptizing? To the Pharisees, it would be offensive. Jews weren't baptized. Gentiles who were converted to becoming uh, Jews, they were baptized. Jews weren't. So he's saying, you're coming to God's people, and you're baptizing them to repentance. You're treating them like a Gentile. You're raising questions about their covenant relationship with God. You're, you're stirring up something here by telling them they need to repent for some reason like a Gentile when they're already part of God's people, God's family. That's an offensive thing to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. You're questioning their standing. But what does John do? He, again, he doesn't engage that. He draws attention away from himself. Less messenger, where does he point? He points to Jesus. Well, I'm baptizing with water. But let me tell you this. There's one among you that you don't even know. He is so great, I can't even bend down and unstrap his sandal. I can't do the work of a slave. He is great. I'm not worthy to be his slave. He is so great. Yeah, the crowds are coming to John the Baptist. Yeah, there's a movement going on. There's a revival happening right now with John the Baptist's ministry. But he says, I, I'm nothing. I, I'm just a voice. I'm not the Christ. I'm just building a road. I'm just moving brush off the road. I'm just dipping people in water, plunging them in water. But there's one coming after me. You need to be concerned about him. You need to forget about me, and you need to remember and focus on the one who's coming because I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Less, less messenger. I mean, he is, he is relentless in pointing to Christ. He puts the focus on Jesus. And this is a great message for us, that being a witness certainly means living a godly life, certainly means speaking words that are life-giving. It certainly means following Christ, but it ultimately means you're not a witness to you. You're a witness to Jesus. You are pointing to someone else. And ultimately, I think one of the greatest hindrances to our witness is self-focus. What do they think about me? Can I answer that question? 
Uh, am I worthy to be a witness because of the inconsistencies in my life? They know me. What if we get into a conversation that I can't answer? Boy, John's a great example. He's not going to get into all the weeds of this, that, or the other. No, I'm not Jesus. No, I'm not that prophet. I'm just this. Look to him. He points people to Christ. And that's, that's really the key. Ultimately, hopefully, our lives would be a testimony. Hopefully, our lives would be the light. But let's be clear about this. Your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving boss, your unbelieving client, your unbelieving brother or sister or son or daughter or mother or father, your unbelieving family member that you will be gathering with this year at Christmas, perhaps, uh, they, they ultimately the, the issue is not they accept or reject you. The issue is they accept or reject Jesus. That is the focus. They will not stand before you in eternity and give account for their life to you. They will not give an account for uh, your life. They will give an account to their life. They will answer to the judge who's showing up on the scene right now in John 1. The pathway is cleared for the Lord to come who brings the good news and also brings judgment to those who reject him. A witness says you have to deal with him and is pointing to Christ. It's never an excuse to have a bad attitude. It's never an excuse for our sins. It's never an excuse uh, to be a hypocrite. But let's be real. People ultimately believe or disbelieve Jesus. They love or hate Jesus. They're an enemy or a friend of Jesus. That's it. There's two kinds of people. And so John is relentless pointing them to Jesus. You know, I wonder if there's some in the room where you've had questions about Christianity because you've had questions about Christians. You've seen hypocritical Christians, and maybe we've argued and made the focus us and how we're right and look at us and this, that, and the other. And, and, and you know what? If you are a Christian, we just need to own the hypocrisy in our own lives we need to own that Jesus has come to rescue us from those sins. He didn't come for perfect people. He came for sinners. And, and we need to point you to Christ. And if you're investigating the faith and one of your holdbacks is, well, I read the New Testament and I like Jesus. He seems awesome, wonderful, loving. Uh, but, you know, as Gandhi said, I love your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Maybe you feel that way. Uh, and I'm not going to argue with you about that or defend us. Uh, we are fallen and weak people. But I just want to say this. If the middle school orchestra squeaks and squawks through a piece of Beethoven's music, it doesn't make that composition any less glorious because the players stink. <laughs> they're young and immature and they're learning. That's our motto at Grace Church. We're young, we're immature, and we are learning. We really are, and we squeak and we squawk all the time. So let's don't anybody act like we're the maestro, you know, we're some amazing, no, no. We are just learning, and it's ugly to listen when we practice at times. But that does not discount the, mess the message of Jesus Christ who is glorious and who is perfect. Look to him and answer to him. And as Christians, let's be less messenger-focused and more message. Let's look at the message, verse 29 through 34. This is the last section. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He whom you see, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Wow, what a section. This, this is all message. This is all witness. This is what I heard. This is what I saw. This is what I know to be true. And it's all about Jesus. We are to increase. When we say more message, what I'm trying to say is we need to elevate our vision of Christ. We need to emphasize what he has done. And as we interact with others who may not know Christ, we must be, we, we must be emphasizing who he is and what he's done. We need to make much of him and not much of ourselves. Again, we don't cultivate hypocrisy. We, we want to be. Uh, we're crying out to God to help us to be godly people. But we ultimately, seeking to be godly, we, we do fail, and we want to make much of Jesus. We don't want to make much of ourselves, our lifestyle, our values, our politics, even our church. Ultimately, we want to make attention, bring attention to the Lord, and that's what John does. The next day, he's not talking all about his calling and all this kind of The next day, what he's doing is he's pointing people to Jesus. Verse 29, he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, what a powerful picture he gives that I don't think anybody's expecting. Here's the Lamb of God, he points, out to, he points Jesus out to the people. The people are expecting a Messiah who's a great warrior king, they're expecting a political leader to lead Israel, to overthrow the oppressive Roman government, which is controlling their holy land. Uh, they, they're trying to, they, they're expecting this Messiah who will come in and will, will lead an army to defeat, like, like David in the old days, will lead an army to defeat Rome. They want freedom from political oppression. That's what they're expecting. Or even a leader that comes in the power of Elijah, or even a deliverer like Moses. And John says, you get a lamb. They want power and force and dominance. And he says, you get a lamb. That's who's come. That's who God has sent. Jesus is the lamb of God, sent from God. They think they need a political leader because they don't understand their greatest need. Their greatest need is not political freedom. That's not the greatest need. Their greatest need is freedom from their sins. How will they stand before the holy God of the universe? They don't need a political leader. They need a lamb. Now, the metaphor of the lamb, you see it throughout the Old Testament. Well, you see literal lambs in the Old Testament, but they point uh, to Christ ultimately. The ultimate picture of a lamb in the Old Testament happens at Passover. And this is probably what it's referring to. It could be a little more general, but likely if there's a specific reference to he's the lamb of God, it's the Passover. And what happened was God's people had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, and, and God freed them from Egypt. And what he did at the end of a series of plagues, what he did this, this last night before he gave them freedom, was he told every family of Israel that they were to slaughter a lamb. 
and they were to take the blood of the lamb. I know it sounds like very ooh, you know, but the Old Testament and the New Testament is a bloody religion. It really is. A bloody faith. We're saved because of blood. That's reality. So they said, take this lamb's blood and put it over your doorpost. And then when God comes to bring judgment, he will, uh, he's going to bring judgment by, by bringing death to the firstborn in each uh, family of Egypt because they repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly rejected him and his people. And he says, when, when, when the death comes, if there's blood on your doorpost, God will pass over you. That's where we get the word Passover. He will pass over you. So what is, what is this Lamb of God picture? It's saying that because of the blood of an animal, uh, you will be safe from the wrath, from the judgment of God. He will pass over you. And John is saying, this is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does. He gives his life. He dies on a cross as a substitute for us like the Passover lamb. And by the shedding of his blood, if you believe in him, if you trust Jesus, if you believe his death counts for you, then you are in union with Christ. Your your sins are forgiven so that God's judgment never touches you. It passes over you. Well, what if I'm a really bad sinner? You are. There was really bad sinners. People in Israel that day, I hope you know, husbands and wives had a fight that day. Kids dishonored their parents that day. People were lustful and greedy that day. People hated their neighbor that day. People gossiped that day. People did all kinds of sins that day. But when the judgment came, if the lamb's blood was on the door, God passed over, and that's how it works with us. If Jesus' blood is applied to you, if you believe in him and what he has done for you, John tells us, then God will pass over you and you will never experience his judgment. Those who reject him, who have not, are not in Christ, have not come to believe in Christ, then they will stand on their own before a holy God. And every one of us would be condemned if we stand on our own. That's why we need God's forgiveness, and it comes through Christ, who is the Lamb. The people need a Lamb, is what they need. The grace of God comes to us in the Lamb of God. He, he provides for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. And this is the whole storyline of the Bible. God gives you what you cannot give for yourself. God does for you what you cannot do for yourself. Starts all the way back with Abraham. Abraham's going to sacrifice his son, and what happens? His son is spared because God provided a lamb. And so his son is spared. The people are in, in Egypt. The Passover we just talked about. God spares his people because of a lamb. The temple is built later in their history, or even before the temple, the tabernacle. Animals are sacrificed. Their blood is shed for the forgiveness of the people's sins as a substitute. The the lamb is slaughtered so that the people remain in relationship with God, forgiven of their sins. The prophets come along. Isaiah said, hey, Isaiah 53, there's coming one, there's coming the Messiah, and here's what he's like. He's like a lamb led to the slaughter. He bore our sins, Isaiah says. He carried our iniquities. The the judgment, the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. Who was he? He was a lamb led to the slaughter. Jesus comes. And the first introduction, the first, as as far as I'm, I guess the first word is he's called the word in verse 1. But in John's gospel, the next thing we really find out about Jesus is that he's fundamentally a sacrificial lamb. 
and it continues. The, the new, whole New Testament is, is the message of Jesus sacrificed as a lamb and risen. And when you get to the end of the story in Revelation, yes, he's a, he's a king. Yes, he brings judgment. Yes, there's majestic pictures of Christ in Revelation. But one of the most powerful is in Revelation 5. And it says there are thousands upon thousands of people gathered around the throne of God. And this is what they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In the very end, everybody is worshiping not a literal lamb. It's, it's a metaphor of what Christ has done for us. Jesus, the lamb. Lamb equals grace. Lamb equals God provides. Lamb equals you are forgiven based on God and not you. And that's the story of the whole Bible. That's the story of the whole Bible. And John is the final prophetic witness to say, don't look to me. Don't look to my odd ways. That's the lamb. That's where you need to look. There's something happening here that is significant in salvation history, the, that God is coming, and God will pay the price for our sins. In her book on Advent, Fleming Rutledge writes the following, with the announcement of John, the world begins to turn on its hinges. The final reckoning is going to take place. And so the judge of all the universe arrives upon the scene. But it is not as we thought. The face of the judge is marked with infinite suffering. His hands and feet are torn by spikes driven in by violent blows. His brow, pierced by the crown of thorns, bears the tokens of utmost humiliation the judgment has already happened. It has taken place in his own body. The Son of God has borne it all himself. The judge who is to come has given himself to be judged in our place to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. The judge comes to be the judged. The king of the universe arrives as a lamb to take away our sins. Well, that's not all he says. There's more message. There's more message. He also says that Jesus will bear and give the Spirit. Uh, he says that, now he knew Jesus, but he said, I didn't know, he's ultimately saying here, I didn't know he was the Christ until the Spirit came upon him. And he says, the one who sent me, God told me that the one on whom the Spirit rests, uh, that is the one who will uh, baptize in the Spirit. That's what he says, verse 33. So there's going to be someone, the Spirit's going to come on him, and then he will immerse other people in that, that Spirit. That's Jesus. He's baptized by John, the other Gospels tell us, and the Spirit comes upon him, and then he will be the one that will immerse people in the Spirit. So this is why that's, that's powerful. The prophets taught when the Messiah comes, it will be the age of the Spirit. God will pour out his Spirit upon the people of God, everyone who would believe, and that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes, he dies, he's buried, he ra he's raised, he's at the right hand of the Father, and then in Acts 2, he pours out the Spirit. He immerses people in the Spirit. He actually says in, three, in John 3, a couple chapters later, he's going to say to Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit. So he's saying, if you want to know God, 
If you want the Lamb of God to forgive your sins, then what has to happen is you have to be immersed in His Spirit. The Spirit has to open your eyes. It's called being born again. It's called, elsewhere in the Bible, being a new creation. It's called coming into union with Jesus by the Spirit. It's called receiving new life. The Bible talks about it in a number of ways, but it's the work of God's presence that changes us. God's presence comes to us and gives life to our dead hearts, Ephesians chapter 2. He's saying that understanding the message of the Lamb, understanding the message of the Messiah, and repenting and believing is not something you can do on your own. Oh, you can come out and say, John the Baptist, dip me in the water and I'll get out. But there's one coming later than me who will do what I can't do, which is give you a new heart by the power of the Spirit. Give you new birth, change you from the inside out, give you gifts, empower you as a witness. There's one coming that will do what you can never do for yourself. He is the one who bears the Spirit, and He is the one that distributes the Spirit to all who will believe. The Lamb, the bearer of the Spirit, the giver of the Spirit to His people. This is glorious what we could never do for ourselves. And that's why Christianity is different than every other religion. It's not about you do your part and God will do his. It's not about you measure up to God's standards and he will approve of you. It was God sent a way for you to be saved and you won't even believe it if his spirit doesn't open your heart. You need the spirit of God. I read a most interesting quote yesterday that Normally, I wouldn't have stuff like this in my sermon, but it was so compelling and was not in a place I wouldn't expect it. It was in an op-ed of the Washington Post. And in there, Michael Gerson, who used to be a speechwriter for President Bush, wrote the following. If Christianity were judged entirely by the quality of Christians, it would be a tough sell. And I include myself in that judgment. Most of us are a jumble of resentments and fears. Most of us can be proud, cruel, foolish, and self-deluding. The best response is found in Advent. The most reassuring message of the season is that the existence of hope does not depend on us. It does not rely on our virtue or wisdom. It is a delivery from elsewhere. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew something of the subject, compared Advent to a prison cell. In which one, quote, in which one waits and hopes and does various unessential unessential things, but is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside. That's Advent. We see our needs, we see our weaknesses, but the door has to be opened on the outside because hope is outside of us, only outside of us. That's the message, and we want to point people to that message, that hope lies outside of us, that hope lies in Christ, that we are all imprisoned. But this time of the year, we know that God sent his Son, and the Son sent the Spirit to give us new life. I think this outline from this passage, or as at least one outline, this could be outlined a number of ways, but at least one outline, the way I see it, is that John minimizes himself less messenger, and maximizes the lamb, the bearer of the spirit, tells everybody, look there, look there, look there, look there, more message. I think that is a great preparation to be an Advent witness. Some of you are going to be gathering with unbelievers in the next couple weeks. They may be your family members. 
people that don't believe in Jesus. They may be a friend or a neighbor. Maybe you're not, given COVID. Maybe you are. I don't know. But these two ideas are compelling, I think. Realize your weakness. I, I love what Bonhoeffer said, uh, that, that it has to come from outside. The, 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 the prison door has to be open from the outside. No prisoner can open the door. It has to be open from the outside. Delivery comes from elsewhere, as Gerson said. God will use your testimony. God will use your love. God will use your verbal witness. God will use your service. But it has to come from him. You're weak. Nobody's coming to Christ because of my glory or your holiness. God comes from the outside. The truth and the power of the Christian faith is on Jesus. It's not an excuse for us to sin. But if the greatest person to live, Jesus said John the Baptist is the greatest person to ever live before Jesus. He says the greatest person in humanity. If the greatest person in humanity is deflecting off himself and pointing to Jesus, what in the world am I doing? Realize your weakness, but number two, and finally, realize God's power. God can save anyone. No one's sins are greater than the blood of the Lamb. No one's heart is so hard that the Spirit of God can't crack it open and give it life. Your sin, your stubbornness is no match for the Spirit of God. His will is greater than your will. Your sin is not greater than the sacrifice of Christ. Your sin cannot overcome the resurrection of Jesus, which defeats sin. We need to be aware of his power, not our power. His word, not our words, ultimately. We need to point people to him. Your friend, your neighbor, your family member. In Bonhoeffer's words, they're in prison and, quote, the door to freedom has to be opened from the outside. God will use you. God will use you with the message. God will use you with a heart. God will use your prayers. But ultimately, God has to work. Let's think more about Christ. Let's repent of our self-importance and maintaining our wonderful relationship before everyone, our wonderful you know, example before everybody. Let's admit that we've blown it. Let's realize that they're not gonna be saved because of us. And let's strive for consistency. Repent of hypocrisy and strive in the Spirit for consistency. But ultimately, get the light off of us. Get the spotlight on Jesus, for only the Lamb saves. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 